and welcome to UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips. My friend Victoria can't join us today, but don't worry, it's not just me. We are joined by James, who's the Commons Manager for Back for the Brink. Welcome to the show, James. Hi, Neil. Pleasure to be here. Oh, thanks for coming on, yes. Um, now, we're going to talk about the Back for the Brink, Back from the Brink project rather, a bit later on, but we'll start with our sightings. And as tradition, the guest gets to go first. So, have you seen any interest in wildlife recently? Well, with it being February at the time of recording, it's pretty bird heavy, which it wouldn't normally be. But in the Big Garden Birdwatch recently, uh, had a gold crest in the garden, which was actually the first time ever seeing one in the garden. And so the fact that it chose that exact hour to pop in was was pretty special. Oh, nice. Yeah, I think a lot. Of, I like a lot of people. I think I mentioned on the last podcast. Um, my birds decided not to show up, although I did get a, I did get a female chaffinch, which was fairly notable for my garden. Don't get them very often. So yeah, um, yeah, I've I've done all right this week. I've had a couple of ravens when I was working, and when I sat down for my lunch, there was a couple of kestrels being very vocal. Both and they both sat in a tree, and then the local buzzard came past, and they both went for it. They didn't want to hang around, so I got to see two kestrels mobbing a buzzard, which is always nice. Well, that's very good, yeah. On the bird of prey theme, I'm spending lockdown in Yorkshire on the edge of the Humber estuary. And so uh, if I can get a lunchtime walk or a weekend walk, very, very reliable sightings of sometimes three or four marsh harriers at a time cruising up and down the estuary, which is quite nice. Can't be a good marsh harrier. We do quite well for them in South Essex here, but they're still lovely to see. Right. Well, we're going to go straight on to our main topic today which is the Back from the Brink project. So I guess the best place to start, James, is to, well, say who you are and uh, what Back from the Brink is exactly. Well, I'm the comms manager for Back from the Brink. So essentially, I sit in the middle of it and try and tell everybody about how great it is and what we're doing. And, and the project itself is an effort to bring back from the brink of extinction a collection of, of England's most endangered species. And they are a cross-taxonomic group of species. We've got birds, we've got plants, we've got insects, we've got mollusks, we've got odonata as well, your dragonflies and damselflies. Oh, and back from the brink is, is a partnership of conservation organisations. So our lead partner kind of pulling it all together is Natural England. Really, the, the other partners are all the kind of the, the big charities, amphibian and reptile conservation, plant life, bat conservation, bug life, butterfly conservation, bumblebee conservation, and the RSPB. And all of them kind of bringing their own unique specialised knowledge together so that, uh, for example, where we're working on Dorset's Heaths, which is a project led by plant life, looking at all the species of the heath. Now, traditionally, if somebody's doing a conservation project, they will look at their focus species or their focus taxonomic group. But with a collective knowledge of the partnership, we can look at Dorset heaths and say, well, actually, if we're creating bare sand patches, they'll benefit smooth snakes, sand lizards, but also the June tiger beetle as well. If we're looking at kind of damp, muddy, acidic ground in heathland, that's going to be great for marsh club moss. But the fringes of that might be good for the Purbeck mason wasp, which needs kind of damp clay. So really, we're hopefully delivering more for nature by working together than we would by working independently. So we have 19 projects scattered all across England, some of them focusing on one specific species and some of them, like the Dorset example I just gave, looking at a whole suite of species in a particular habitat or landscape. Oh, wonderful. 
Yeah, I've, I've, I mean, I have come across the project. I was lucky enough to go on one of the Shrill Carderby training courses with uh, Rosie Walker, who we'll have to get on the show at some point. She was brilliant. And I've been up to the, the Rockingham Forest project. That was really good. And I joined in with the photography thing there, which was really nice, with uh, Neil Albridge. Neil Aldridge, sorry, and um, someone I know who's <laughs> forgotten his name. <laughs> That's embarrassing. Oh, so we talked about him five seconds ago and his name's gone from my head. Alex Hyde. There we go. <laughs> sorry, Alex, if you're listening. <laughs> I forgot your name for a second then. Um, yeah, and that was really good. What see what they were doing up there, helping the adders and loads of other species up there, isn't there? Is uh, yeah, it's a fantastic project, the Rockingham uh, one. I mean, um, the fact that you've immediately gone for adders probably makes you unique because almost everybody thinks of Rockingham when they think of the reintroduction of the checkered skipper, yeah. um, which of course is is one of the species in that project, but it really is the jewel in the crown of that one, I think, in people's minds. So the checkered skipper was extinct in England by 1976. Its extinction probably caused by loss of suitable habitats. It's a butterfly that likes sunny glades in wooded habitats. And through the early part of the 1900s through to the mid 1900s, there was a cessation in traditional woodland management. People people stopped coppicing woodlands and, and kind of sustainably harvesting timber for table legs or tool handles or whatever it was people used to coppice wood for. And they left it and the woods kind of grew up and became dark and shaded out the kind of food plants of the checkered skipper and, and a whole range of other species as well. So for a number of years, the project, which is led by butterfly conservation, has been working with landowners and, and forestry England to bring light back into these woodlands, uh, widening rides, scalloping the edges, creating these wide sunny rides and, and essentially making, preparing it for the return of the checkered skipper. But at the same time, proving habitat for the wood white, the white admiral plants such as crested cow wheat, which has a kind of a slightly boring name, but is the most stunning flower you'll ever see. Uh, fly orchids, all sorts of things. And yeah, we reintroduced the checkered skipper back in 2018 and it has been seen on the wing 2019. And just when lockdown eased a bit last year, we were able to uh, get sightings of it in 2020 as well. So fingers crossed for 2021. Yeah, I believe you're planning to introduce some more in 2021, was it? <laughs> you wouldn't do some today, this year, weren't you? Or last year. So it's 2020 now, isn't it? So <laughs> you're planning to introduce some this year because you were planning to do some last year, I believe is the case, isn't it? It was the case. The, the original plan was to do um, three years of translocations of checkered skippers to Rockingham Forest. We did that without hitch in 2018. We did it in 2019, no trouble. 2020 with the coronavirus pandemic, obviously that was unable to take place. And as it stands in 2021, we're just not sure. So that's there's a question mark over that at the moment. But it may be that the butterflies that we've brought across so far are maintaining and sustaining themselves we're just going to have to wait and see it's it's out of our hands yeah that's a good thing about invertebrates if you get a fair amount of them they sometimes they'll just get going on their own and as long as the habitat's right they'll be quite happy so uh, fingers crossed for those guys now we, when we advertised this episode we put up a picture of a shrill cardaby and being that i live in south essex that's kind of a, a local specialty of pretty much in england anyway it's the thames estuary 
almost only, isn't it? I believe they think there's a few around Salisbury Common, but not haven't been seen for a while. Yes. So there's there's two kind of main clusters of population in England. One is uh, yeah. Somerset, where it yeah. kind of lives in sort of traditional farmland margins and so on. The other being, yes, the Essex Gateway. And then there possibly might be some on Salisbury Plain, but nobody has seen them, I don't think, for about a decade. But it's a huge area and the access is so difficult because nobody wants to get run over by a tank or stand on any <laughs> unexploded ordnance. They could be there without us knowing. But the state of knowledge is two main population sites in England. Yeah, and we had a question from Suffolk Naturalist, which is Hawk Honey. Um, on Instagram, they asked, are there any plans to reintroduce Shrill Cardaby into parts of Suffolk where it's historically recorded before? So not as part of the Back from the Brink project, uh, or indeed not as far as I'm aware in general, but I think the reason for that is we are still in the position of, of A, trying to understand in detail the life cycle and requirements of the Shrill Carder Bee. That's been part of the focus of our Back from the Brink work, particularly in Essex, is nest sizes, um, distribution, foraging plants, etc., as well as trying to work out what interventions we can put into place to maintain or extend those populations from those core uh, areas anyway. So in Somerset, that's involved working with farmers and landowners, such as the National Trust down there, and uh, encouraging people to leave flowery margins or put in place arable margins that include the right sorts of flowers that, that suit the shrill carder bee. So I think the focus at the moment is stabilising the population in England before there would be any thought of, of reintroductions. However, as, as I probably should have said at the beginning, Back from the Brink is focused on species in England. And that's not out of any sense of England is better and deserves the project. Really, I, I rather think of it as England went first so that the other countries could learn from our mistakes. And um, in the pipeline, there is going to be a Back from the Brink type project in Scotland and in Wales. And I believe the project in Wales will also be looking at Shrill Carnaby populations in South Wales as well. So that there is going to be a kind of a legacy of support for the Shrill Carnaby ongoing. That's great. Yeah, because I know in Essex it's not entirely, but quite a lot of the sites are brownfield sites, which obviously are in danger of development a lot of the time. But yeah, very enough lucky to work in a park that had them. I could pretty much guarantee seeing them on a sunny day in July and August. Well, certainly first part of August anyway. Um, wherever there was red barksia flowering, they seemed to hang around. Um, and like purple loose strife as well, quite a lot, which was uh, apparently not that well known when I. No, I, I didn't it. know that. No. Yeah, there's kept visiting the one by the pond that I'd planted as well. That's what was really satisfying. I planted that plant. So it's like, oh, yeah, well, at least the original one. Um, but yeah, oh, fantastic little things. Uh, we did have a suggestion. Someone suggested renaming the Shrill Cardaby for publicity reasons. Honor Rhodes on Twitter suggested, what about a rebrand for the Shrill Cardaby? I think that would help, I guess, it means his image. Um, the musical Cardaby or the melodious Cardaby myself. Obviously, I'm not sure he's familiar with the noise they make. I, I think Soprano <laughs> Cardaby would be a better name if we're going to rename it, but uh, it's such a high-pitched hum, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, sh sh I suppose shrill has a slightly negative yeah. connotation, doesn't it, as a term? But I think I think in the era that it was named, it, it, it was meant a lot more kind of 
honestly as as high pitched rather than anything else. But I mean, yeah, yeah it, it buzzes at a higher pitch than the Cardaby. So it is it is an apt name. So I don't think a rebrand's necessary. Imagine all the books that would have to be rewritten. Oh all god, the yeah. Reading through them and going, what on earth are they talking about? So it's hard, um... it's hard enough to convince some <laughs> entomologists to even accept there is a common name without <laughs> changing it. <laughs> It's true. It's very true. And it's it's a really, I think that's a really interesting point as well, because I think there is a a real beauty in scientific names of species, but there is a little bit of a barrier to understanding them. I mean, once you've been in the kind of natural history world a bit, you can kind of pick up some of the terms and enjoy them. But I do think for somebody, um, and they're probably not the listeners of this podcast, but for, for some people, there is some beauty in a in a really solid you know english name or common name in fact i don't know if you heard about this i think it was probably 10 years ago best part of 10 years ago uh, bug life and the guardian did a kind of competition together which was to give common names to species that didn't have common names oh i vaguely remember that yeah yeah, yeah. Well, well one of the species that was named as part of that com- competition was the queen's executioner beetle um <laughs> so called because it's a, it's a deadwood specialist that it's found in Windsor Great Park and not many other places beyond that. So obviously there's the Queen connection and uh, Executioner Beetle. It's got this kind of like wide kind of flanges on the side of the head that looks a bit like a kind of an an executioner's hood almost. The Queen's Executioner Beetle. And the fantastic thing is, is that species that got given that name about a decade ago is actually one of the species we're working on and back from the brink. And whenever you mention it, people go, well, that's cool. Tell them about the Queen's Executioner Beetle. Whereas if you were reeling off its scientific name, which I can't even remember right now I, nobody would nobody would go wow that's fantastic tell me about that they'd go oh scientific name that i don't understand yeah you know working in education i do find scientific names that if i go to someone oh that's ditiscus marginalis it makes me sound clever but they give me a blank look <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no not not to diss people using saying people trying to sound clever but you know they think oh that person i was going about oh we must have to you know really know your stuff but if i go oh, this is a great diving beetle. They go, oh, wow, that's fantastic. Obviously, it's got great in the name helps, I suppose. But it, it, it's especially when you've got um, not just children, but people that are, I want to say, oh, maybe even apathetic to nature. If you give it a, a cool name, like the other one, was it the that tiny little money spider? Now, generally, with things like money spiders, I'd say just call them all money spider and people know yeah. about. But when you call it, is it the horrid ground the horrid weaver? Ground weaver yeah. I mean, that that is going to make, certainly local paper, I mean, they might do a dodgy scare story, but it's certainly going to make them, um, people go, what on earth's that? And actually read it. You know, so there's there's an argument for it. I mean, the argument against someone uses, well, people say dinosaurs scientific names. And it's going, well, actually, they only say the first half and they're flipping dinosaurs. You know, it's, uh, you know I'm not, you're not trying to infuse someone about a tiny little louse that they can't even see. But you've got it nice and close up. It might look pretty good. But um, well, that brings us on quite nicely on to your need for decent photos, because that, that was a bit of a problem with some of these species. They're rather overlooked, even by nature photographers, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, that's a it's a really good point. Usually, when you think, you know, if you think of your your kind of glossy butterfly conservation magazine or amphibian and reptile magazine, they're, they're selling their species to you. Look at the large blue. Look at the marsh fritillary. Look at this wonderful green lizard. Uh, not green lizard, sand lizard. 
Um, I was thinking of the colour rather than the name. Fantastic pictures. And then in Back from the Brink, we, we're, we're focusing on these species that are really, really obscure, really close to extinction. So not easy for anybody to really encounter. And my job, and of course, this is me going, woe is me. My job is to tell people how great they are and how we should care about it and how we should, I don't know, donate money and volunteer and, 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 and kind of bring these species into our hearts. And that's really, really difficult to do if you've got no picture to show somebody. So if I said to you, the, the narrow-headed ant is amazing. You go, all right, well, fair enough. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But if I can show you some macro picture of the, the narrow-headed ant close-up so that you can see the kind of the, the gleam of the mandibles and the kind of crisp, you know, spines on the... Oh, fantastic. And so um, one, of the, one, of, one of the pieces of work that we've done as part of Back from the Brink is commissioned Neil Aldridge and Alex Hyde, who you mentioned earlier, as well as running workshops for the public, uh, on wildlife photography and filmmaking, they have been capturing imagery of some of our obscure species. So species like the field cricket, which was surprisingly badly photographed beforehand, but then it's a very rare species. Down in, Back in the 80s, I think there were about 100 left in Britain at a single site. It's also a licensed species in the same way that like a, a great crested newt is you have to be a license holder, you know, otherwise you, you cannot disturb that species. And of course, they also spend most of the time underground. So tricky species to sort of get into contact with. And so we commissioned Alex to come along to a day where we were translocating field crickets to a new site. We should probably come back to translocating field crickets at some point in this podcast because it's, it's a fantastic process. And Alex took some amazing pictures. He's also taken amazing pictures of the narrow-headed ant, the little whirlpool ramshorn snail. Neil Aldridge has spent, I do not know how many hours in Devon with infrared cameras and laser beams and all sorts of things in order to capture what I think might be some of the best pictures in the world, certainly in Britain, of the grey long-eared bat in flight at night. Absolutely fantastic. And with those pictures, you can really tell the story of these species and people can really emotionally connect with them. They can put the name to the species, they can look at it and think that is fantastic. So yeah, that's been a surprising obstacle that I think a lot of people wouldn't even imagine would be a barrier is we've got stuff and it's really difficult to sell it because what does it even look like? Yeah, I mean, I find a lot of the Freshwater Habitat Trust and people like that, because I've got pictures of pond creatures, nobody else has got them. And they've got you know, a lot of these, some, there's some creatures even I haven't photographed that as far as we know, no one has. There's a, the female water veneer moth, which is an aquatic wingless form of an adult moth that lives underwater. It's like, no one's, <laughs> very few people have seen it, they don't photographed it. But that's not even rare, because no one's seen it. And how fantastic is that as well, that the mm. fact that there is this wingless female underwater moth, and and what does that even look like? That's, it's just amazing to think there are so many species or, or parts of life cycle that don't exist in a form that people can see and appreciate. Yeah, and we got two of the best people on the job, so that was, that's a good move. Um so we mentioned translocation. I was going to ask you about the narrow-headed and translocation, but we might as well talk about the field cricket as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, well, well happily. Um, so as I said, the field cricket, super, super rare back in the 80s through lots and lots of painstaking habitat management. This is before Back from the Brink's time. That population um, 
grew and became quite secure. And then there has been a, a series of projects, uh, some of them involving the RSPB. Uh, it might surprise people to know that the field cricket project is run by the RSPB. What's happened is other sites have been made suitable for field cricket. So uh, Farnham Heath has sites that are suitable for field cricket, RSPB Pulborough Brooks, and there are a few other sites as well. And field crickets have been taken from those secure sites and translocated and released at, at new sites. The wonderful thing is the actual process you go through to take those field crickets to the new site. So it, as I said before, there are licensed species like, you know, Great Christian newt so you need a license holder that's uh, signed off by natural england and what you do with the field cricket is in about mid-april they are almost but not quite adult so they're not chirping yet and at this time of year they've dug burrows and they're not quite horizontal but they're certainly not vertical down they're kind of like 45 degrees down into the kind of sandy earth and under the watchful eye of this license holder, you go out and you try and spot the, a, a hint of movement at the end of one of these burrows, indicating that it's occupied by a field cricket. You then do the process, which is called tickling, field cricket tickling. <laughs> you, uh, yeah, you get a, 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 a wispy piece of grass, something that's, that's soft, so you're not going to damage the cricket. You thread it down the burrow and you wiggle it as though you're tickling the cricket. Now, I think tickling is a euphemism. I think you're kind of annoying the cricket a little bit. But after a little while, it gets so annoyed that it jumps out the burrow and you grab it. And then you put it in a bag. You show it to the expert, the license holder, who then determines whether it's male or female. And you move Actually, a very, very small amount of crickets. When I was there taking part in this, we moved, I think it was six males, six females. You move them to the new site. They can dig a new burrow in about 10 minutes. So very quickly, they're underground and they're safe. And within a couple of weeks, they've molted and they're full size. Hopefully, those crickets breed uh, and they lay so many eggs that in theory, a population can, can take from that original six. Uh, of course, we then subsequently do top-up uh, translocations for several years afterwards to ensure there's the genetic diversity in the population. But that has been established to be the most effective way of, of moving crickets. It's a few almost mature crickets, so they can kind of produce the next generation very rapidly. So that's the field crickets, absolutely bizarre and wonderful process. And they're such a fantastic-looking creature, sort of somewhere between... A grasshopper and Darth Vader, I think, would be a way of describing it. Really glossy and black, and 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 they're a true cricket as well. Because I think probably most people's mental image of a cricket is probably one of the bush crickets, whereas yeah. in fact a field cricket is a true cricket, and it doesn't really look that much like them. Absolutely fantastic. And so now there are down from that low of a hundred or so individuals at one site in the 80s we've now got six or seven populations and depending on the time of year you count it several thousand individuals so they are feeling a lot more secure now and then you mentioned the narrow-headed ant as well um the narrow-headed ant is is just absolutely fantastic it's it's the story of it is so strange in so many ways um it was once found across various heathland sites in the south of England, uh, Devon, Dorset, Hampshire, uh, that kind of area. Um, and then it retracted down to a single nature reserve. Well, in fact, a part of a single nature reserve in Devon, Chudley Night and Heat, which is a Devon Wildlife Trust uh, nature reserve. And in fact, they're the partners on this, working with Bug Life. Um, this single site in England, which is just as 
about as threatened as you can imagine. Now, that's its only site in England. There is actually... Um, they are actually found in the highlands of Scotland as well. Why they exist in Britain with populations in the highland, then hundreds of miles in which they're not present, and then the south coast of England, I don't know, and I don't think anybody knows. It's just a strange thing. No, there's, there's a couple of um, cases like that, because the brilliant emerald dragonfly does the same thing, doesn't it? it... I wondered if you'd bring up brilliant because yeah. you're a dragonfly guy. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I suppose um, white faced Darth was maybe a little bit like yeah. that because that was was that Thursley and um, yeah, yeah it was certainly Thursley. I can't remember there was somewhere else. I think further south. Yeah, but there's uh, I think the theory with the dragonflies is multiple invasions. So one wave coming that's a bit more cold tolerant, and then yeah, the slightly more southern population coming and for some reason or other they've died out in between a little bit but yeah it's a bit of a weird one that isn't it it's uh because we had we had xander Antboy on uh last year so of course he's he's oh, he's yeah. narrow-headed narrow-headed ant man so uh yeah. yeah 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 of course uh i just thought of another one as well kentish glory which of course is now extinct in kent but still exists oh, yeah. in the islands as well yeah very strange anyway yeah, isn't it yes yeah. so um the narrow-headed ant in england incredibly threatened the one reserve that it's on, the habitat management seems to be perfect for it. There are more than 100 nests. Our narrow-headed officer, Stephen Carroll, has has mapped them all and monitors the fortunes of these nests. Um, and they produce, you know, winged queens and they fly and they do all the things ants should do. The problem they have, that reserve has, is on one side, there is a very, very busy A road. And on the other two sides, there is... Um, I think well, one side there's a quarry and the other side there's farmland. There's no suitable habitat nearby. The, any queen that flies off probably ends up on a windscreen or in the middle of a field that's totally unsuitable. They are on an island, essentially an island of Heathland. And so what the project has been doing has been essentially trying to, to, to develop and refine a technique for how do you translocate ants? Because, of course, it's not as simple as, as, as moving butterflies, where you just go, well, look at some males and females and move them. Ants are a bit more complicated. And so we have trialed translocating entire narrow-headed ants' nests, um, which essentially involves digging up the entire nest, putting it in a plastic storage box, uh, you paint around the rim of the box with a slippery substance to stop the ants climbing out as you drive it somewhere else. You take it to a new site and you essentially plant the nest. Uh, we we tested this on Chudley Night and Heath to begin with. We we dug up a nest from one part of the site because we know the site is suitable for them and we moved it to another part of the site and that nest survived. And so we have now taken a few ant nests and move them to another heathland site where the ants were recorded up until the 80s but then died out we now think that the management there is more appropriate and the site can sustain the ants we've moved those nests there and those nests are surviving i think we're now two years on from when we moved them of course success will be when those ant nests have been there for several years once they've started producing queens and once other nests you know nests have budded off those original colonies that's what success will look like and that's the kind of that's the problem with something like a conservation project that runs for a few years is actually 
success can be quite a way down the line before you can officially say yes we have succeeded but the signs are looking Ooh, good interesting it's it's funny because we've got obviously got wood ants which is former curb roofer as opposed to former curb what's now headed ant is it formica uh formica exceptor that's the one yeah it narrow-headed ant just a quick tangent and going yeah. back to names again the head isn't narrow. If you look at a picture of them, we've got pictures of them on yeah. our website if people want to have a look, a little plug for the website. Um, the head isn't narrow at all. What it is is it's got a notch at the back of the head, like a deep groove, almost like its head's heart-shaped. Uh, heart and in mm. fact, the scientific name Exector means having a piece removed, like excised. So the oh. scientific name in this case is more appropriate than the... Yeah, it's wood ant UID by... Yeah. Bits of the head. Sometimes it's numbers of hairs on the heads in certain places. It's quite. Um, thankfully, location is usually quite a big clue as well with them. But I do remember because <laughs> we, uh, when I worked um, oh, a few jobs ago, we had a few sites and only one had wood ants. And there was some. They'd started coppicing in because they like coppice woodlands, um, southern wood ant anyway. And it, they started coppicing on some sites where the wood ants had died out and probably had been there before. And I did speculate whether you could just get a big digger dig down because the nests are what quarter of a million ants a meter of two meters across get a huge digger dig yeah, it up across. quickly drive it down the road and and put it back in a hole whether it would work but it sounds like obviously with a bit more planning that probably could have worked but uh it's quite interesting that because yeah. yeah what's easier in the narrow-headed ant case is the even though they are um, a wood ant uh, their nests are much smaller. Um, they like to kind of build them in a tussock of grass. So you don't get like those heaps like you do with the southern wood ant. They kind of, they do collect matter, but they kind of build it in a grass tussock. So they kind of make a kind of skyscraper in a kind of clump <laughs> almost. And then they, they put like blades of grass on top of it, almost like a thatched roof to kind of, in, in, and then they put their brood underneath that, like a little solar panel almost. So their their nests are a lot neater and smaller and easier to translocate. I, I wouldn't envy somebody going out with uh, um, spades like we oh, did. No, I was going to ask you, I can't remember no, if they were small or bigger nests, but yeah, thankfully smaller. <laughs> yes, no, you're moving, moving a, a, I think there's one, the one in Wales, I think they can get like four metres high or four metres across or something. I wouldn't want to move one of those, I can tell you that much. Of all those, uh, I mean, the, the bites don't hurt me, but I can imagine if I was moving a nest, the amount that bit me, I probably would start to notice. <laughs> especially with the acid going around. You'd probably start choking on the acid fumes, wouldn't you? But, uh, oh dear, yes. Yeah, oh, what, yeah, uh, what yeah, a horrifying yeah. fall, actually. <laughs> Trying to move a wood ant's nest. Yeah, be worth it, though, because they're awesome animals. Um, oh, brilliant. So, I've got to ask you the dreaded question. Do you, and you might not officially be allowed to have one, but do you have a favourite of all these? Is it 200 species or so, isn't it, that the project's focused on? Yeah, it's, it's just over 200. Yeah, it it's it's very difficult because whenever I think I've kind of settled on one, something, you know, something else kind of captures your imagination. And um, I suppose officially I don't have a favorite. Um, field cricket's very high up. The narrow they're all high up. But if, if to, to one that I think is fascinating, I suppose, is, um, is the, the sand dune population of sand lizards on the Sefton coast, I think is really, really fascinating. Um, what I think is really interesting about them is, once again, you've got 
sand lizards living on the heaths of Dorset and Surrey and, you know, along the south. And then you go up north and not too far away from Liverpool on the beach, you've got sand lizards living there as well, um, which I just think conceptually is, is fascinating, you know, northern um, sand lizards. What I also think is really interesting is that they are visually different to the sand lizards on the southern heaths. The sand lizards on, on your Dorset heaths are, I would say, when you see a, like a male in, in full breeding, they're really emerald green. It's quite a, a kind of warm, deep green. Whereas the sand dune males I've seen um, on the dunes in Sefton Coast, which is where our Gems in the Dunes project is, the sand lizards being one of the gems in the dunes, um, they are almost like lime green. Uh, and I just think it's really, really fascinating that there's this, um, this, this, this distinct population. And I mean, it's not a different species. It's not even a different subspecies. I suppose it's, it's you know, it's a, it's a racial difference. Um, and I just think that's really interesting. And I think it also brings us down to that kind of question in conservation of, of what is worthy of conservation. And, um, on paper, you'd say, well, you know, you've got sand lizards here, you've got sand lizards there. What does it matter if you lose one little population of sand lizards? But actually going out and seeing them and seeing them in the sand dunes, you see that they they behave in a slightly different way and they they, they look a little bit different. So, yeah, I'm going to say maybe not my favourite, but one that intrigues me is the Sefton population oh, of yes. sand lizards. And I think we're going to have to mention the um, a Cornish path moss. Because that's a really interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, it's a. Um, it's not really a showstopper. I think that's or probably bosses, fair yes. to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what What's fascinating about the Cornish path moss is that it is so endangered. Its entire English population covers about half the size of a doormat. And that's scattered over, you know, a range of it's, it's it's across two sites in Cornwall. It's found, and even at those sites, it's kind of scattered across relatively wide areas of habitat. It's not found anywhere else in the world, apart from I think one population in Ireland. So I've got three populations in the world, and um, essentially, it it only it, in the Cornish populations only lives on former mining sites. And it kind of raises the question: Where was it living before people were creating mining spoil heaps and no one really seems to know the answer to that was it living on on habitats before they were mined and and thus its natural habitat is gone and now it can only persist on these mining sites or has there been such a history of mining in cornwall that it's split off from its nearest ancestor i don't know it, it, it's just in a way cornish path moss is is kind of the heart of what back from the brink is it's these species that are being they're they're really threatened and they're kind of overlooked by everybody and yet we would all be poorer if suddenly this species no longer existed in the world or at least that's yeah. what i think yeah it's, it's a it's a not, not the you know it looks like a little green mossy thing but when you look at how rare it is and how how on earth it yeah where was it living it's kind of an interesting one is it a human created species who knows it's one of those one of those lovely mysteries of nature one more thing i want to talk to you about because we could just go through all the different projects but we'd probably be here for a while yeah, yeah, we did. Would, yeah. <laughs> um, but i think one that probably if there's a movement called panlisters who are pe if people try and see every species of animal in the uk but one that's high up on many of them lists is the ladybird spider um 
And yes, I imagine <laughs> we mentioned before the the poor project officer uh, gets asked about going to see it and photograph it by lots of people. <laughs> I should imagine. But um, how's how's that project been going? Has that gone okay? And is there any news on that one? Yeah. What... So I mean, I must I must confess up front. Um, I'm a panelist, you know, I like, I like things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, I've also got to admit, you know, when I, when I got this role on Back from the Brink, I was like, oh, I might get to see a ladybird spider. And I've asked, and you know what? I haven't got, haven't been able to see one. <laughs> and I think, I think people see the picture of the ladybird spider, the male ladybird spider that is, because the females are just black and velvety. The male has that wonderful ladybird like coloring. And they think, wow, that is, that is gorgeous and that is fantastic. And that, that is absolutely true. But what people don't realize is the labor spider spends most of its life underground. The male only comes out above ground in that coloration for a, a, a week, couple of weeks, um, a year when it goes out and, and looks for females. And then they go underground again. So they're really, really difficult to even see in that kind of gorgeous ladybird-esque dress. Um, the other problems ladybird spiders face is they build these elaborate underground tunnels just under the surface of like dry, heathy soils. And problems they can face is if someone or something steps on those, they can collapse in and trap the spider inside, kill the spider inside the burrow, which is one of the reasons that every single site for the ladybird spider is currently kept confidential because we've got this perfect storm of people who would love to see the ladybird spider. It's it's such an attractive species that people who probably aren't even that wildlife, you go, that's cool, I'd like to go see that, but also a species that can be very negatively impacted by habitat damaged by people trying to trying to go and see them it's also very very localized and so it could you know if you're going to step on one you could easily step on several burrows because they're quite close together so it's um it's a tricky project because out of all of our species it's the one that most people would love to see and yet it's the one that we say i'm afraid at the moment nobody can see this However, that said, the fortunes of the ladybird spider are on a positive trajectory. It was thought to be extinct in the UK for 90 years, almost a century, until it was rediscovered in the mid-80s by accident. At that time, they counted about 40 webs. So the, the spider builds this underground burrow and it has a distinctive web structure at the top. And so rather than counting individual spiders, you, you count the webs, basically. And they counted about 40 webs in the mid 80s of this spider so a, a uk population of about 40 spiders nowadays there are and 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 it depends how you count populations because uh how far away do spiders have to be from each other to count as a separate population they don't seem to move that far so sometimes populations can be quite close to each other but still be counted as different subpopulations but we we say there's about 15 or 16 small populations of ladybird spider now with some hundreds of individuals across them but they're still threatened they still need a lot of close conservation sort of management there are still plans to keep moving these out to new sites who knows maybe we will live to see a time in which you can go out and see a ladybird spider and go gosh that's absolutely gorgeous I can tell you, I work on the projects and I want to, but I am happy to wait until the population is secure before I can do that. Yeah, same here. I mean, they're beautiful spiders, but, you know, 
they were a little bit showy-offy for me. <laughs> <laughs> a bit obvious. Yeah, g- yeah. give me a nice, a nice raft spider. Uh, I'm, I'm well known for loving raft spiders. So. <laughs> don't know. I don't. Do you know? I don't think they're in my top ten spiders. Don't. Not that I wouldn't give an arm to go and see one. You know. But <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I'm, I, I think that's called denial, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I've seen most of the good ones already. <laughs> I mean, arguably a wasp spider's prettier, but they're so common now that people... Well, actually, that's not true. People, naturalists tend to look past them, but um, you're, um, how do I put it, layperson, I suppose. Um, if they see a wasp spider, they're like, whoa, what is that? I didn't know we had that in this country. Um, yeah, that, that, yeah, is a, yeah. that is a crowd pleaser, the wasps. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Bit old hat down here now. <laughs> so many of them places. I still get excited when I see one and what I'm talking about. They're still lovely. But yes. In my garden in Bedfordshire last year during lockdown, I hadn't mowed the lawn in about three years. And um, I got 26 wasp spiders turn up. I've no idea where from in my garden in Bedfordshire. So yeah, they're, they're certainly getting pretty widespread um, in the kind of in the south yeah, I think um, we did an episode on them and I can't remember how far north they've got now. But I do know when we did the episode, I think I found out afterwards it was out of date because they're spreading north so quick. Um, it's certainly as far north as sort of Norfolk, Lincolnshire, I think now. Brilliant. Right. Well, James, I could probably talk to you all evening, but um, I think we better start wrapping it up there. But it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. The project is fantastic. Where can uh, people find out about Back for the Brink? Back from the, I keep calling it back for the brink. Back from the brink. <laughs> um, people can find about about us on Twitter. We are at Nature BFTB, the BFTB standing for back from the brink. Our website, which is www.naturebftb.co.uk. Basically, if you just search back from the brink on Google, you'll find us. You might also, by checking on any of our partner websites, you might find information about back from the brink or, or their specific back from the brink projects that they manage we're on instagram we're on facebook so yes google back from the brink you'll find us yeah and there's some cool videos on youtube as well isn't there but you can get through the website i believe so uh, yeah i've I've watched some of those Uh, rather good is there anywhere we can find you on twitter are you yourself or online if people want to find you yeah i am i'm um, at jhm underscore 23 it's not a very sexy name but that's what i go by Uh, it's nice and easy to remember <laughs> and type. It's only a few letters. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Well, go and, we'll go to, I'll make sure I'm following you. I think I am actually from that username. Um, but yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been uh, really nice having you. Really interesting to talk about those projects. And I'm quite sure we'll be doing some more on Back from the Brink. Oh, yeah, I said it right quickly. Hooray. <laughs> um, in the future as well. So uh, we may have you back on again. But uh, yeah, thanks very much, James. Absolute pleasure being here. Thank you. And uh, there's not much news this episode, so hopefully there'll be some live episodes soon, but uh, watch social media for those. But that's it from me, so uh, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcast or whichever podcast service you use. You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod, or one word. Or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast. And like us on our Facebook page, UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can also post to the UK Wildlife Podcast community group. Or if you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UK Wildlife Podcast. 
This episode was edited by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.